Well, hey, friends, it is so great to have you join us here again today. My name is Clay Monk, I'm the lead pastor here at Next Level, and I love it that you uh, tune in or however you watch this. Uh, thanks for doing that. Today, we're going to wrap up our series on Prove It. And in it, what we've been saying is there are many times that we are asked in our lives to prove ourselves, right? Proof of ID, pass a test, even show your work on a math problem. But have you ever thought about what it is that proves you are a follower of Jesus? We've been talking about that for the last three weeks, and it comes right from Jesus. He was very clear about this. Uh, read this verse here. It says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus is saying, and he's very clear right here, that the proof to those around us that we are one of his followers is how well we love each other. And this is vital to understanding who we are called to be as Christians. And you need to understand, it's core of who we are here at Next Level. We are built around being an example of what it looks like to love people recklessly. And today, I want to wrap up with something that is vitally important in our culture that we find ourselves in these days. What I want to start talking about is how we can love people with our words. And then I want to go to a much deeper place because our world can use some deep love right now. But before all of that, let's start with a short little survey. I'm going to make a statement. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a statement. And what I want you to do is think about the first person that comes to mind. And when you do, I want you to pay attention to how you feel. What feelings come over you when I make this statement? Okay, got it? Here we go. Who's the first person who said, I love you? Now think about it. The very first person that you remember saying the words, I love you. Who was that person? How did it make you feel? All right, next. Who's the first person that made fun of you? Now, I hope that that's not the very same person who said, I love you, because that would be really bad. For me, this is a kid named Jimmy in third grade, and I still hate that kid. <laughs> I'm kidding, well, slightly. But who's the first person that said, I believe in you? All right, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a teacher, maybe it was your parents who told you, hey, I believe in you. You've got potential, you've got what it takes, you're going to do great things. Who, who was that person for you? Now, for some of you, this one may sting a little bit. Who was the first person that said, I think we should just be friends? Maybe it was like the whole, it's not you, it's me. Like, who was basically the first person who broke up with you? Who was the first person that said, you're hired, right? Who's the first boss who said, hey, I believe in you. I'm going to bring you onto our team. You've got the job. How about the first person that said, you're really talented? Who's that person, all right, that, that recognized the talent or the giftedness that nobody else recognized for you? Well, for me in my life, that was the pastor's wife of the church I attended when I was in high school. Well, who was the first person who said, you're fired, right? First person that said, well, it is you, it's not me, right? Who is that person? Do you remember that? How did you feel? Now, here's the deal. That's the power of words. You may not have thought of every single name in every single category, but you remember the words that that person said to you. You remember how it made you feel because they carry weight. Words can have influence. They shape you. They can mold you. They can affect you. They can damage your heart or they can heal your heart. Words have that much power. In, in fact, I would say it this way. 
Maybe. Words have the power to tear down. Got to love that. Or the power to build up. Right? Proverbs says the tongue can bring death or life. Now, that is not just hyperbole. That's not exaggeration of dramatic effect. I want you to think about your life. Think about your relationships, your career choices that you've made, the school that you went to, the person that you married, the person that you're dating, the friendships that you've had, the friendships that have dissolved, the relationships that are broken. Words have the power to bring life and to bring death. That's really, really significant, but the writer goes on. Those who love to talk will reap the consequences. What the Bible is saying is that we have the great potential to speak things into other people's lives, right? Good or bad, we reap the consequences. Words carry a huge power in our life. Now, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he knew the power of words, and he writes a letter to this church that's kind of struggling with words, and they're struggling in this area. In James chapter um, chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For we could control our tongues, we could be perfect, and could also control ourselves in every other way. So James is saying, basically right here, if you want to try to achieve perfection, then start by trying to control your mouth. Because if you can control what you say, then you have mastered the art of self-control. Because perfection is not attainable until you can control your mouth. He goes on to talk about the damage that our words can cause. Uh, If you read that text, he compares it to an out-of-control fire. I don't think I need to preach a sermon on that. We've all been victims of someone's words who have burned us up. And sadly, as the church, we're still learning this. Uh, No one is better at shooting their wounded than the church. No one is better at hurling insults at people who don't believe like us than the church. It's been divisive, it's been hurtful, it's pushed people away from the message of Jesus. And what James is telling us is be careful how we talk to one another because we carry a lot of power in our words. Now, let me just kind of pause right here because the temptation at this point is to just change how we talk. Like, let's just talk nicer. Let's just stop lying. Let's stop cursing. Let's stop gossiping. It's tempting to just build a list of things that you shouldn't say or do. It's tempting to make a behavior modification list. And and some of you grew up in churches that did that for you. When you accepted Jesus, there was just this informal list of do's and don'ts that was handed to you. But the thing is, that's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus is not centered on behavior modification. That's not being reckless and loving. That's just being religious. Now, I'm not saying that by following Jesus, behavior won't change. It will, but that is not the focus. What Jesus says over and over and over is, I don't want to change how you behave. I'm going to change how you love. I want the love that you have for me and the love that you have for one another to dictate what you say because what we say is a reflection of our behavior. What you say is a direct reflection of what is in your heart. So Jesus would say, and what we're going to see here in Luke, is our heart and our words are intimately connected. So the words that come out of your mouth isn't just a reflection of behavior. What you say is actually a direct reflection of what God is doing in your heart, or the absence of what God is doing 
in your heart. Look here at Luke chapter 6, verse 45, where it says, A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. I mean, that is a great phrase. What you say flows from what's in your heart. People who are following Jesus should say things that overflow from the love of God in their life. Therefore, the words they choose to say should breathe life into the people that are around them. Not because they're religious, not because they went to church, but because their heart has been transformed. They've had an encounter with Jesus that completely transformed their life, and these life-giving words are the natural overflow of that. Everything they say breathes life into other people, not destruction. So what I want to do with the remaining time is to look at five heart conditions that followers of Jesus have and challenge us to pursue those five things. And the first one that I want to look at right here is this. A heart of generosity, right? You matter to me. Followers of Jesus say, you matter to me. And that flows from a heart of humility. When, when people have a generous heart, their natural response is to value other people. Look at what Jesus says here in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others, and you will be forgiven. Give, and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together, to make room for more running over and poured into your lap. The amount that you give will determine the amount you get back. Here, here's what Jesus is saying. is When we have a self-centered heart, it's easy to cast judgment on others. It's easy to believe that people don't matter as much as you matter. And if you were here last week, we talked about the categories we all tend to put people into. And one of those categories was people who matter and people who don't matter. And the reason I bring that back up is because it is so easy for us, even as followers of Jesus, to put people in a category that they don't matter as much as I matter. Usually it's people who don't dress like me or don't have the same amount of money as me or don't live on the same side of town as me or drive the same kind of car or have the same type of career. It's easy to cast judgment on those people because they are, like we said last week, wrong. It's them. But Jesus is saying that there's a whole lot better, uh, it's a whole lot better to not condemn or judge people. And then he ties that type of attitude to this idea of generosity. What he's pointing out is that when you move from a heart that's full of judgment and condemnation, where everyone is wrong but you, where people who aren't like you don't matter, a heart that is small and self-centered, what you get back is more judgment and condemnation. Jesus is saying there's a cost to living this way. It subtracts from your life. But when you move to a heart that's full of generosity, where other people matter, where you openly give of your money, right? But we could also say give your time and give your energy. He says your return on living that way pays back more dividends than you can even hold. In fact, it spills out of you onto everyone that is around you. So if we want to follow Jesus, we have to develop a heart generosity. Second thing is we need a heart full of grace. People with a heart full of grace say, I forgive you. 
You know, forgiven people should be the most forgiving people on earth. People who have been forgiven by Jesus should be the first to offer forgiveness to others. But why is it the church is known more for what we don't forgive than what we do forgive? Why is that? That's not how Jesus loves. Followers of Jesus say, I forgive you willingly. Look what Jesus says in Mark chapter 11, verse 25. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. I mean, that's hard. And there's an interesting connection here. And I admit, I don't fully understand it, but Jesus is making a very clear statement that there is a conditional aspect to us receiving forgiveness from God and our willingness to forgive other people. So basically, Jesus is saying is when you go to church and you're singing songs or you're praying prayers, if in that moment you realize, ooh, I am harboring bitterness or resentment against somebody, you should forgive them. Why? Because intimacy is broken with God. You can't have authentic, honest, transparent intimacy with God and hold resentment towards someone else. Jesus just says that's impossible. So there's this aspect of faith, an aspect of our relationship with God that is dependent on us extending grace to those that desperately need it, even those that have offended us, because that's what God has done for you. So God is saying, if you want my forgiveness, then demonstrate it. If you want my forgiveness, show it. If you want my forgiveness, speak it. Say, I forgive you, because then you grasp the gift of my grace. There is nothing that limits our ability to love like Jesus than built up resentment. And there is nothing that restores intimacy faster than the extension of grace. Not just in our relationship with someone else, but in our relationship with God as well. Well, the third thing is that you have a heart of gratitude. People like this say, thank you. Like Jesus in in Luke chapter 17 encounters these 10 lepers. It's an interesting story because leprosy was this unique disease in the New Testament because it had such social implications attached to it. Right? They had a skin disease and were considered unclean, which meant they could not be restored back to a relationship with God spiritually. So while this physical disease had this social implication, people can't be around you, it also had a spiritual implication. They weren't allowed to go to the temple. They weren't allowed to offer prayers. They weren't allowed to offer sacrifices. There were laws put in place to protect other people from people with leprosy. So you had these leper colonies that were set up on the outskirts of town, again, because you're not allowed to live in town or in a village if you had leprosy. No contact with people, which, I mean, we kind of can understand. But this is what it says when Jesus encounters them. It says, now on his way up to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Luke includes this phrase here, along the border, for a reason. Jesus could have taken any route that he wanted to Jerusalem, but he chose to go along the border. He chose to place himself in direct proximity to Samaritans, which were hated by the Jewish people. So if he's going to demonstrate love, he's not going to avoid people who need to be loved. This is key. He's going to place himself in proximity to people who need love. And so he's walking along the border between Samaria and Galilee, And uh, he's going past a village. And ten men who have leprosy, they meet him. And Jesus tells these guys, hey, go show yourself to a priest and you'll be healed. 
And as they start walking, incredible story, their skin begins to clear up. Their wounds go away, and they start to be restored. And then one guy decides to go back and thank Jesus because he's so overwhelmed with gratitude. He falls at Jesus' feet, and he can't say thank you enough. He thanks him over and over and over again because Jesus had done this amazing thing in his life. And here's Jesus' response in verse 17. Jesus looks at him and asks, Didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? See, this guy could not help be grateful for all that Jesus had done for him. Jesus' followers have grateful hearts. We're grateful because we recognize all that Jesus has done for us. But when we take our eyes off of all of that, all, right, all the things that Jesus has done for us, when we take our eyes off the grace, the mercy, the healing, and the love that God has provided us, we start drifting towards entitlement and gratitude that just begins to be removed from our life. You can't be simultaneously entitled to something and grateful for something. Right? These two things cannot exist. That's why worshiping God is so important. Most of us, what we do when we worship is we remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. And when we reflect on that, we show our thanks in worship. This is the whole point of worshiping God. So if you come into a place like this and you sing songs without reflecting on the words or sing songs without an attitude of thankfulness or spend that time criticizing the lyrics or the lights or the style Rather than worshiping the God that the lyrics are about, you're missing the whole point of worship. You're like the nine lepers that never came back to thank Jesus for the amazing thing that he has done. So followers of Jesus have a heart of gratitude. They say thank you. Well, the next thing is that followers of Jesus have a heart of repentance. Right? They're willing to say, I was wrong. Proverbs 28, 13 says, you can't whitewash your sins and get by with it. You find mercy by admitting and leaving them. Let me explain what repentance is. Repentance isn't being sorry for the consequences of our choices. Repentance isn't even being sorry for the choices themselves. Repentance is rethinking what I have done, admitting when I was wrong, and then choosing to do differently from that point forward. And so often, many of us, what keeps us from loving like Jesus is our unwillingness to admit that we're wrong. So we cling to our rights. We justify our choices based on someone else's decisions. And since we don't admit to God that we're wrong, we're not willing to admit we're wrong to someone else either. And we have an inability to love unless we have a repentant heart. And so, question. Who in your life just simply needs to hear for you to say the words, I was wrong. What relationship can be restored and rebuilt if you just simply owned what you need to own? Right? That, that's a repentant heart, and that's what it looks like. Well, the last thing, a follower of Jesus has a heart of encouragement. They say, I believe in you. Right? 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, so encourage each other and build each other up. Paul is writing back to this church, and he's telling them to continue to encourage one another. And Paul had a great example in the person of Barnabas. You remember, if you were here last week, Barnabas, man, he just believed in Saul, who became Paul, when no one else did. And for me, those are my friends, honestly, Ken and David. 
I mean, recently, even in the midst of overwhelming success in our church, I kept having the reoccurring thought of, man, I'm blowing it. I'm a terrible leader. And these guys sat down with me, and they spent quite a time spelling out exactly why that was a lie, that, that God was using me. And in this church, you are surrounded by encouragers. I hear stories all the time of people texting each other or calling or DMing to encourage people. Uh, they, we bring the best out in people, right? We have people here that know how to speak encouragement into other people's lives. And you know what? People love being around them because it's easy to want to be around them. So let me ask you, who in your life are you that person for? Who are you encouraging? Who are you intentionally investing in with your words? The people in your life, they're not there by accident. God has placed them there for you to breathe life into. So who are you going to do that for this week? Who are you going to encourage? Who are you going to speak life into by just saying, you know what, I believe in you. I believe in your dream. I believe in your gifts. I believe in your future. I believe in you. Maybe. Some of you didn't have a whole lot of that growing up. And that's not an excuse for us not to do it. It doesn't give you a free pass. God still calls us to encourage other people, even if we didn't get it ourselves. So that's what being a follower of Jesus is about. So here's what I want you to do really practically. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I'm done, I want you to pause the video or just stop the video. And I want you to write out a note card. I want you to write something to somebody that needs words of life. They need to be encouraged. Maybe you need to write to somebody and say, I forgive you. Or maybe you need to write to somebody and ask, will you forgive me? Maybe you need to write to somebody and just say, hey, I believe in you. Who's that person? Practically, you can do that today. God is going to bring somebody into your mind. Would you just be obedient in that moment and just write it out and then deliver it this week? If you do, you will watch God breathe life back into that person or back into that relationship. And let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that we would all be filled with your love. Let that change our heart and let it change the way we speak with all those around us. And now, as we are preparing to sing another song, take these words as worship from me, as my thank you for all you have done in my life. In your name I pray, amen. Well, hey, friends, thanks for joining us today. If you think today's message might be valuable to somebody you know, would you mind sharing this video? Not only could it be helpful for them, but by sharing this content as well as liking and subscribing to this channel, you are helping us accomplish our mission to raise the reputation of Jesus. And along those same lines, I know I ask you this every single week. If you'll head over to our website at nextlevelchurch.org, click the green Give button that's in the top right corner, Choose one of those options that's there. Your faithful support here helps us raise the reputation of Jesus where we live, work, and play. Now, by way of benediction, let me begin, and, or let me end, with the verse we began with three weeks ago in John chapter 13, verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. May you prove you're a disciple of Jesus. May you love recklessly. And may that love lead many people to an everlasting life. Hey, guys, thanks for being here. Uh, I'm praying for you. I hope I can see you in person sometime soon. I love you.